Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I had a great conversation with Dr. Cesar Padilla about his work bridging subspecialties between critical care and obstetrics to be able to tackle the problem of maternal mortality in the United States. I I learned in the course of this conversation, the United States is head and shoulders above other developed nations in terms of maternal mortality and morbidity. And it's a problem that is very stubborn. There's a lot of new and exciting ways that Dr. Padilla is tackling this with some of his colleagues. We had a great conversation about that and some other key principles that have guided his uh, formation as a professional. So I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Cesar Padilla. He is an anesthesiologist and he's also completed ACGME um, fellowships in critical care as well as obstetrics. And he comes from a really interesting place intellectually with this, this idea of cross-pollination that I'm really excited to talk about today in combining these different disciplines in some ways to solve big problems and old problems in new and exciting ways. So Dr. Padilla, thanks for joining us today on APM Success. Justin, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, I'm excited for uh, for us having an exciting conversation. So th- thank you again for inviting me. And uh, so a mutual friend, uh, Dr. Karen Seibert, introduced us recently. And Dr. Seibert has been on the show a few times. Tell us a little bit about how you know Dr. Seibert. So Dr. Seibert is, well, I just want to start off by saying she's an amazing mentor. And she's someone who just stands out in my career. She uh, was a staff anesthesiologist at Cedar sinai uh, I believe she's now at UCLA, but that's where I completed my, I did my residency training in anesthesia at Cedar sinai And it's a unique place to train because it's an MD-only practice. And so as an MD-only practice, which for people out there who are sort of not familiar with anesthesia residencies, MD-only practice means that you have one physician in the OR with Uh, that resident. And that's really uncommon. What you have mostly across the country are CRNA. You have uh, a physician overseeing um, uh, multiple OR rooms. So it could be, uh, there could be a CRNA in in that room, or there could be a resident in that room. But training in a MD only practice was key because imagine you get paired up with the physician all day, and they sort of become your mentors. And every single minute of that day, there are opportunities for education. And Dr. Cyber, you know, what struck me about her is how she really understood things from multiple sort of levels. She understood that we're not just physicians. She understood that we're part of something bigger. We are part, you know, physicians are uniquely integrated into society as leaders, as scientists, as writers. And she influenced me in a lot of ways. I would just sitting here talking to you, I would say that you know, one of the influences is the power of writing. I started writing for Kevin MD, the popular social media, uh, social media's uh, sort of website for, uh, for physicians. And that a lot of that inspiration came from Dr. Seibert because she's a great writer. So 
you know, I would say she's more of a life coach <laughs> and she's, you know, she helped me get an OB fellowship and put me on that track. Um, but yeah, she's a great person. Yeah. So tell me about that. You know, the OB fellowship and critical care as well. It's at what point did you decide that you were going to uh, do so much ongoing specialization? Yeah. Uh, so that decision came from other mentors at Cedar sinai Another person is Dr. Mark Sikowski. So Dr. Mark Sikowski is, um, well, actually, you know, it's funny as I'm here, as I'm telling you this story, there are a lot of similarities with Dr. Sikowski and Dr. Seibert. Uh, both of them were uh, presidents of the California Society of Anesthesiology. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Imagine, I mean, that's awesome, right? Imagine working in a place as a resident and like these two attendings that you rub shoulders with are basically like, you know, presidents of the California Society of Anesthesia. And if you take a step back, you're like California is the fifth largest economy in the world. I mean, this is no small feat. They're basically like presidents of societies of countries. And Dr. Sikowski is trained in obstetric anesthesia. He did extra training in that. And he's the current section chief. Um, or when I was there, he was certainly the section chief of OB anesthesia. And he would tell me, you have to think about the evolution of the field of anesthesia. The walls of the OR limit you. And, and that's really true. And just think about it just conceptually. In an operating room, you're locked in a room. If you're out there walking around, whether you're in ICU, you're doing OB, you're being seen. Your engagement is different in the hospital. And plus, it's a good balance in, in your life. So he was a proponent of doing a fellowship. And he told me, he was like, look, we have a problem in obstetrics, which is there's a, a rise in morbidity and mortality. Uh, there is a need for critical care skills. And our fellowships are only one year. It's a great investment for all of you out there who are interested in medicine, I would say this with zero, like, like uh, I stand hundred percent behind the following statement. Obstetric anesthesia is the hottest fellowship. And I'm going to probably go into a few reasons why that is, because I'm assuming you're going to ask me, Justin. And he put me on that path, but the extra little twist was to do a critical care fellowship. So I went into uh, so I graduated Cedar sinai went to Boston. I was at Brigham and Women's where I met amazing people. Again, the power of mentors. I mean, we have to highlight the power of mentors here. I met people with that same sort of vision of the, of the field, people that wanted to pick me up and support me at Brigham and Women's. And, you know, I went there with a the plan to do two fellowships. So I, I did both of my fellowships, did OB first in 2017 and then um, 2016. Uh, wow. So I can't even remember getting that old. 2016 and OB and then 2017 to 2018 in critical care. But it was, it, it, and this speaks to generational sentiment. We know that millennials, and I'm proud of this, that's my Twitter handle, MillennialMD. We identify with a sense of purpose in the workplace. We want to work for companies that have a sense of, uh, that provide meaning, we, that have a, a sense of, of commitment to our communities, that, you know, we stand behind the ethos of our CEOs. And you know, we see that universally, you know, you're wearing a Nike um, sweatshirt. Nike is one of my favorite brands. And I, strang I stand strongly behind their, their message of like social justice and things like that. Um, and when Dr. Sikowski put me on the path for OB critical care, it was a path of purpose to address a, to address a specific 
um, need, which is a need for awareness in it, it, a need for solutions in addressing critical care and obstetrics and a rising morbidity and mortality. Women are more likely to die now than they were 30 years ago in the US and our patients are getting sicker. And so I think that was really, you know, it was a sense of purpose. That's really the lifelong energy that Dr. Sikowski gave me. And um, I would say the people at Brigham and Women's, what they gave me. There's a number of statistics in American healthcare that are mind boggling in their illogicality. I'm pretty sure I made that word up. And, and I think that this has to be one of the foremost of these statistics. The, the fact that uh, maternal morbidity and mortality has been going backwards. And if you, and if you compare us to other developed countries, the, the magnitude of the difference and then in, and that's true in absolute terms. And then if you look at it in terms of spend, it's just, it's insane. So I'm sure this is a complex and multi multifactorial problem, but can you maybe briefly describe a couple of those, uh, whatever the, the high coefficients are in this, with this challenge that we're facing? Yes, absolutely. This is why obstetric anesthesia is the hottest fellowship, because we have this problem that is very unique to our field. And so I, before I really get into the answers uh, to answer your question in detail, I really want to highlight the setup. Which the, the setup is that, you know, if you think about cardiac anesthesia or pain and, you know, pain management, you have to think about the sort of the, the background setting up those fields. What's happening in obstetrics is unique because, um, well, first of all, it's two lives. So you have the, you know, or, or can be multiple, it could be, you know, but you have the, the life of the mother and uh, developing baby, but you really have sort of the, what, to me, what pregnancy represents, it's really the, it's almost like the, the sanctity of a society. And you have this problem that is unique in obstetric and, or in obstetrics, which is a rise, an acute rise in morbidity and mortality. So to answer your question, there is an increase in complexity in patients. And a number that certainly stands out is if, if we were to take the ICD-10 codes that sort of uh, detail severe maternal morbidity. So severe maternal morbidity is basically end organ dysfunction. So you think about ARDS, acute renal failure, things like things like that. That as an intensivist, that's how we view the body. We view the body in organ systems. If we look at ICD-10 codes, uh, so I believe for severe maternal morbidity is 2022, uh, they have gone up 200% from the 1990s into the uh, 2013-14. The top cause of mortality in obstetrics is cardiac. It's cardiovascular. Really. And if so if you take those numbers and then you compare them to sort of what's happening in Europe, in Europe, the mortality has not necessarily risen. Now, and I'm talking about the industrialized world. I really want to make that distinction for your listeners. You know, we're not talking about the um, sort of developing world. We're talking about the industrialized Western, you know, the United Kingdom and the United States just for purposes of simplicity. In Europe, patients are also, there, increase, there is an increase in mortality from cardiac related. Sepsis is the leading cause of death. But we just don't see that aggressive trend in mortality that we see in the U.S. But behind that, behind that mortality is the fact that upon review of these maternal deaths, the majority are preventable. So up to 60% of maternal deaths are preventable. And if you look at specific causes like sepsis, up to 70% 70, 70 
or upwards of 70% are preventable. And so here you have this very unique problem, Justin, right? You have this, this problem where patients are getting sicker. We as anesthesiologists are uniquely trained to really understand the body and to really deal with critical illness. Um, that's our job. Our job is to deal with emergencies, basically, you know, under anesthesia or where you're in, if you're a critical care trained anesthesiologist, whatnot. And so our, our skill sets prepares us uniquely for this setting. And then you have this preventability. You have a preventability of maternal death. And the deaths are the tip of the iceberg. You, you know, imagine, you know, underneath each maternal death, I believe the statistic is 50 to 100 uh, cases of near misses of like, or severe maternal morbidity. So you're really, um, uh, you know, there's really a problem here that we're sort of all addressing uh, or we're certainly trying to address, but this is the beginning of something new. So the way I see it, I tell residents is this is a new field. It's really this unique combination of critical care and obstetrics. And you really, just because no one is talking about it at your hospital doesn't make it a new field. That's the key. You know, just because they're not talking about it, it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You know, because, you know, as anesthesiologists or anesthesia residents, and I'm sure a lot of residents can sort of attest to this, you, the first thing you hear is like, well, you know, you see a lot of your buddies doing pain management or cardiac. You may not hear that a lot about OB. But it's because a lot of the sort of the novelty of OB, it's, it just became ACGME, um, so accredited, I believe, 10 years ago. And it, there's a novelty to it, but I'm, you know, I'm giving you an inside view into the secrets of OB, why it's the hottest fellowship. And, um, you know, for me, it was the drive to address maternal morbidity and mortality and um, sort of a lot of these, these problems that are attainable, certainly within our lifetime. I mean, there's no question about it, that we can develop algorithms to capture these patients. And, you know, we'll go into some of these things that, and we have tools now that can screen for patients at risk of clinical decompensation. It's an exciting time. Absolutely. I'm curious, you know, during the course of you sort of considering a second fellowship or maybe even slightly before, were there any patient interactions or experiences that perhaps sort of overlaid on top of your mentor's exhortation that really solidified this for you? Yeah, absolutely. There was this case and I did a case report on this. So just for full disclosure, I, I have all the like, you know, when we presented the case report, you have to get permission from the patient. Uh, we had a patient who was otherwise healthy and she developed um, a postpartum or peripartum cardiomyopathy. So she had acute heart failure. It was, you know, we ruled out other causes. It was not an amniotic fluid embolism. It wasn't a, a clot, you know, it wasn't a PE. It was essentially, uh, you know, once you exclude other causes and you have an EF below 45%, you have the diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy. And I believe her EF was 10 to 15%. She was, she was, it was severe. And Cedar sinai is, so Cedar sinai Hospital in LA is the number one hospital for heart transplants. Uh, I believe it still holds that, that title. Uh, I know we, we used to have little pins that had the number of heart transplants done. I think it was like 140 something. So be, you know, I was lucky. I was lucky that uh, I was in a center that was the champion in the world of heart transplants. And this uh, woman who delivered went into, you know, acute heart failure. She had flash pulmonary edema. Uh, we intubated her and she ended up getting an impella. So an impella is a left ventricular assist device, which is basically a device that's floated through the arterial system. 
uh, it, it sits in the left ventricle, you know, above, uh, you know, in the chamber of the left ventricle, and it basically sucks out blood and it promotes offloading of the ventricle. And as you know, it's, it, and we call it non-invasive because you don't have to have a sternotomy to get uh, an impella. So it, it sucks blood out, uses a little ro uh, motor to then expel blood into the aorta. So it augments the heart. And she recovered within four days. She basically recovered to a normal ejection fraction. And that was, the f I believe to this day, you know, we wrote it up, submitted it to the, the journal. It was published. It, it's the first case of an acute um, sort of um, improvement after um, an EF that severe using an LVAD. And that just really opened my mind because I was like, wait a minute, here I am, I'm a resident, right? So let's, let's, let's talk about this, let's put this into perspective. I'm a resident and I just published the first case report of like an acute, or you know, the, of a fast recovery because most recoveries with that bad take months to recover. And so I was like, oh my God, like there is, I mean, there is so much that is unknown so much that is unknown and that reality you know first of all it's humbling but it's very for me it's 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 like putting puzzles together this is the opportunity we need i mean we just found the, the fact that patients with preeclampsia and severe features have diastolic dysfunction this is new stuff you know we don't have ways standardized ways of identifying uh, diastolic dysfunction of pulmonary edema in pregnancy. This is stuff that is going to happen in our lifetime. And it's going to, it's going to be things that we develop with other, our colleagues in maternal fetal medicine, et cetera. So that was the case. It was that case of peripartum cardiomyopathy where the patient had an LVAD, acetyl sinai, she got better. I mean, it's amazing. And you know, those, those inter, and that was a CA1 then. So it was, it was those encounters, you know, they, they, they leave an impression. And yeah, you know, I still remember the patient's name. And, and you know, that's how strong it is, you know. Um, but th that would be the case, you know. There's there's no question that that set that emotion, that sort of intersectionality of uh, cardio critical care obstetrics, or you know, th those fields, cardiac critical care and obstetrics. You mentioned when we spoke the other day this idea of regionalizing care, and you t you told me a little bit about how it works with transplants, and which was all new to me. I didn't really know how that works. Maybe take a minute and kind of describe how that works and how a similar system may be enacted to really help significantly curb some of these statistics. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, it, it's amazing how lucky I was to be at Cedar Sinai because the the chair of, of obstetrics there is one of the. I'm blanking on her name right now. Maybe you can Google her name, um, but she is one of the leaders in the field of of OBGYN, and she was one of the authors of this document called um, the Levels of Maternal Care, and um, and it was, the name is like right in my head. Is that um, Dr. Kirkpatrick? Yes, I was going to say client was with the K, Dr. Kirkpatrick. Uh, yeah, Kirkpatrick. So, uh, as so, Dr. Kirkpatrick uh, was one of the authors of the levels of maternal care, and this document is one of the most important documents I believe in the last twenty-five years in medicine. It's a document that says if you have a sick patient of a sick pregnant woman, you really need to think about which hospital she delivers at because, and, and it, it it just 
that statement makes so much sense on yeah, so many. It does. It's simple, right? It's simple, but sometimes the best questions or the best statements are simple. So how do you do that? Well, you have to take into account their comorbidities. Okay, a patient who has a history of CHF, a history of renal failure, a history of autoimmune disease, a history of, that is not the same as a patient who has no comorbidities. And so what doc, you know, what the levels of maternal care did, and this is the statement, by the way, that was sponsored by our societies, uh, the ASA and the, the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology SOAP, um, we sort of sponsored it. it was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like you have to regionalize care. And the data, be, we know that if sick patients or patients with a higher complexity deliver at lower acuity, lower sort of, or, or hospitals with lower resources where they do less deliveries and things like that, there are worse outcomes. It makes, think about the patient I just presented, a patient who had, when it's a, you know, heart failure. I mean, you really, she, you, first of all, you need to have a cardiothoracic surgeon basically there to, to put in an impella, like emergently in the cath lab. That's not gonna happen. And, and granted, she had no risk factors. However, it goes, it, that really speaks volume to centers who have these resources. So how do you funnel these sick patients to these hospitals? So in my mind, what makes sense is you think about the liver, or sorry, you think about the transplant sort of committees. So the transplant committees work by regionalizing care. So the U.S. is sort of divided into segments. Um, I mean, I don't know exactly the segments, but let's just say Northeast, Midwest, you know, whatnot. And if you're a, on a, on a transplant list, well, you live in a certain, you know, designated area of the U S and your chances of getting an organ are essentially a little different than whatever, if you live in another place in the U S. And I remember this because I, you know, I, I did a surgical intern here at, at Cedar sinai Our year was, was, uh, you know, we did a lot of surgery. So it was like, uh, and that was when I was on the liver transplant unit, I remember flying out to, uh, you know, as an intern would fly out to like a different, you know, it, your designated states around LA to go pick up organs, basically. Um, but why can't we do the same with pregnancy? Here we have a, a process of pregnancy in most cases. It's, it's a you know, nine, nine and a half month process where you have time to plan. You have time in the antenatal setting. You have time to send a patient to identify sick patients. We have tools. One of my mentors at Brigham and Women's, Dr. Brian Bateman invented a tool that screens for patients in the antenatal setting. And you're, he, this tool is able to predict with great, with great, uh, so predictive value, which patients are going to decompensate. We have our, these tools at our disposal. And so really there's no reason why we cannot at this point in time, why we cannot implement, uh, strategies and evidence-based pathways to send patients with an appropriate level of comorbidities to higher level, higher acuity hospitals. We should be doing that because the data supports it. And well, not only does, does the data support that, the levels of maternal care dictates that, you know? And so now you have our leading societies talking about this and the next step is to implement it. But it's really going to be this nice cross collaboration of specialties. Um, but that's how I think. And to me, that's how it makes sense. So it's like, if you're if a patient is pregnant, we should be able to track that. Okay, here's this patient with high complexity. Okay, you know these are the hospitals around where she lives. Okay, we're going to counsel her why it's important this patient delivers here. Why education is empowerment. You know, once a patient understands, okay, I am 
at a slightly higher risk of having a bad outcome because I am sicker, uh, what, what not, you know, when you account these comorbidities, you know, placenta previa, what, you know, all these things that we know we can account for, it's empowerment for the patient. It's empowering. It's empowering. And so now they, now they know, and now they know why they have to deliver at a certain hospital. We're not there yet in the terms, uh, the levels of maternal care don't, don't dictate that yet, but we're heading there. I mean, I'm thinking about a, a more uh, like an embarrassingly simple example is like, I'm here in West Philadelphia, we have the trauma hospital and essentially the non-trauma. So we've got Presbyterian on 38th and Hup on 34th. And if you're like bleeding out from a gunshot wound, you want to go to Presby because that's, they know how to deal. They're equipped to deal with certain situations of a certain type of acuity. And they, every, all the teams there, you know, they, they operate in a way that is cognizant of the, the nature of that medical situation. Whereas, you know, at Hup, they're the, infrastructure is not such that it's optimized to be able to handle those situations in the same way. And you take that sort of very simple example, and it makes perfect sense that we can then take every hospital around where somebody lives and stratify them based on who's equipped to be the, the level one trauma equivalent of the OB with the, all the comorbidities and be able to direct them there, especially as you noted, we've got nine and a half months to think, or you know, less than that, but we've got months to plan. And uh, that, that makes all the sense in the world. Absolutely. It, and I think when, when things make sense in your mind, I think as human beings, we can crystallize that vision, if that makes sense. It's almost like when, when we're being told something that makes sense, our, our mind naturally gravitates towards that sort of understanding. So I think about driving down the freeway and seeing a level one trauma sign. Why can't we have a, 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 a sign for pregnancy, you know, pregnancy related the levels of care? So the highest level, the highest complexity level is a level four. So it works opposite. The numbers are opposite from the, from the trauma classifications. But why can't I see a sign that says level four maternity hospital? We should. We should. I mean, there's, there, you know, we should. And our, our, our uh, state representatives, our government is behind this. They are actively asking us to come up with ways to address maternal morbidity and mortality. And I really, you know, I, have, I haven't um, really mentioned this, but uh, it's, you know, I want to highlight the, the burden of mortality in the African-American population and the Native American population. Um, this is really key. You know, African-Americans are four times more, three to four times more likely to die um, from pregnancy-related complications. Native American women, two times more likely to die. You know, that's a, that subject in itself, the inequalities, um, the racial inequalities is a whole different, you know, that would be, you know, a whole episode on its own, but it, we need to mention that here. That's, this is part of the strategy. You know, part of the strategy is to really identify sick or identify women ahead of time when they're pregnant and send them to appropriate level hospitals. Just like when we're driving down the freeway, we see a level one trauma center right next to that sign. Equally, <laughs> it needs to be the maternity, the maternity sign. And I think we're close. I think we're there. It's just going to take a little bit of vision and, um, you know, maybe just, um, just people just doing it. Yeah. Tell me about uh, the idea, so we mentioned the idea of cross-pollinating between specializations or um, sharing ideas um, between uh, physicians coming from different uh, places or even like physicians and non-physicians. Talk about how that has opened up some of these ideas for you. 
That's a great, that's a great question, Justin. So cross-pollination and yeah, I mean, the, I really believe that when you are in a new setting, when you're a little uncomfortable, your growth is exponential. You have to be uncomfortable. One of the best lessons I learned from Dr. Seibert, from Dr. Sikowski is go to a different place for fellowship. Be uncomfortable, grow, be around people who challenge you. Doctor, there's a, a, a great mentor, Dr. Bill Kamen. So Bill Kamen was, um, he was a, a, a previous section chief of OB anesthesia at Brigham and Women's. Um, and he taught me a lesson. It, this is so important for people to hear. When you're at your retreats, your professional retreats, you know, for us, either medical societies, those are we consider, you know, where we catch up with all our buddies and you know, don't hang out with your own people all the time. Go sit at the table with the, with the crew from Chicago, with the crew from LA, with the crew from Miami. Why be comfortable? Go, just go. You will learn things. But that little example speaks volume because you can apply that strategy to your fellowship training, to your, you know, your job. That is key. And one of the things that Dr. Kamen, it was during my fellowship year, I remember this conversation, this is, this is fantastic. I mean, this is the way that I mentor residents, what he did on this day. It was the beginning of my obstetric anesthesia fellowship. And I told him I'm interested in critical care and echo all this stuff. Without me saying anything, Justin, he looked up this critical care and obstetrics conference that's hosted by, an, by the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, which is an obstetric society. This is an annual course, an annual course that's held in, in the, at the University of Arizona, Banner University Medical Center. And, you know, I'm like, wait, Dr. Kamen, like, I can't go to that. I'm an anesthesiologist. And I remember the look on his face because he was like, so? Like, so? That's irrelevant. And I'm like, brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant because it's so true. So guess what I did? I went. Not only did I befriend the organizers of, I, you know, they're like my professional colleagues. We've just published papers together, like Dr. Mike Foley, big shout out, past president of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. By the way, this society are the ones that wrote the levels of maternal care. So these are influential people in the field, but they invited me as an instructor. And so I, it's my, this will be my, well, because of COVID it was canceled, but um, this will be my fourth or fourth year, fifth year as a, as an instructor, ultrasound instructor, a critical care skill. And so I want to give a big shout out to Dr. Bill Kamen for having that sort of, um, you know, that, that, that incredible um, perception and the intuition to really, you know, to take a trainee and be like, just go, just go to that conference. And he looked this up on his own. It's amazing. It's amazing, but that is the power of mentorship, you know? And so we're talking a lot of, we're talking about a lot of different themes here. We're talking about cross-pollination, you know, um, you know, the power of going, you know, meeting with different uh, professionals and, and mentorship, but it's all part of the same subject. You know, it's all about get out of your comfort zone, do things that are a little different. And what I learned at this conference, at the Critical Care and Obstetrics Conference, what I learned is that there is an enormous interest in critical care and obstetrics. People from all different levels of training, nurses, midwives, 
uh, OBGYNs, MFMs, residents, people from all different levels of training want to address this. They want uh, more education in this subject. And so that was the big eye opener for me. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. I'm definitely doing a second fellowship in critical care. <laughs> you know, when I was like, I'm definitely going to do it. But yeah, I mean, it's amazing, right? It's amazing. Like, like why limit ourselves to anesthesia societies? Go crash the critical care, you know, crash the, the OBs, you know, and the conversations that we have, I'm like, I never really thought about it because we each have a unique perspective. Yeah. It's it's funny, and uh, if you're listening to this instead of watching it, I'm just I have this big grin on my face, and it's hilarious to me the translatability not only between specialties in medicine but between professions because I'm I'm living the reality of this as well. Like a couple of years ago, I basically stopped going to financial advising conferences because I kind of know the spiel, and you know there's obviously some things that we learn, but it's mostly just the opportunity to kumbaya with your friends, uh, which is great. And that there's a lot of value in that too. But I basically a couple of years ago said, I'm going to go to anesthesia and pain conferences and get way outside of my comfort zone and just see what happens. And it has changed everything. Uh, and this that's why this podcast exists. And that's why sort of my company has the flavor that it does. And uh, it is, it's really difficult to, and I still remember some of these first conference, like, you know, especially when you're the finance guy who goes to one of these medical conferences and we already have this reputation, you know, <laughs> among doctors and I'm just looking around and feeling so dumb. And it would have been easy for me to say, holy cow, that was super painful. I'm never going to do that again. But uh, for whatever reason, I, I did see the value. I was convinced of the value, uh, not only for like what it would do for my business, but for me, like it's making me a better human <laughs> and I'm uncovering these unique problems and challenges and building relationships that's going to allow me to do something really unique and special. And so I'm, I'm just a huge believer in this principle. And I think the more we can encourage people to go to a conference where you don't know anybody that has maybe a tangential relationship to your expertise, but not a, not directly like in your wheelhouse, that's where the new ideas are born. And that's really exciting. It's up to the program directors and chairs of departments, you know, because I think that the culture, the, the tone, the tone of a culture is set by the leadership. It, you know, it could be a disruptive, there could be a disruptive innovation from the grassroots level, you know, or it could come from the top where like the vision is shared. So for me, I was lucky that I, I had leaders at the top, like, Dr. Sikowski's of the world and Dr. Seibert and, and Dr. Kame and Dr. Bateman. These are people that, that enlightened me because of, you know, they were sitting on the top looking out at society and how it was changing. They picked me up and were like, Hey, look, look what's out there. But that's the power of, you know, of having people like that in charge. You know, that's why Dr. Seibert was the president of the California Society of Anesthesia. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> it's not, you know, Dr. Sakazi, it's not a coincidence. It, these people are in charge because they, they get it. They get it. And you're absolutely right. Like the, the, the power of cross-pollination of intersectionality, you know, another one is like technology. Like there is, you know, the, the intersectionality of, of healthcare and, 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 um, and technology, it's, it's there. It's there. So like, you know, I tell residents when they come on a service and we're working with, with, with a new set of residents, I tell them, question everything around you. Just because you show up to the operating room and you see things done a certain way, it doesn't mean that it's going to be done that way forever. 
And you really have to just question everything around you. You can, every single resident out there in any field of medicine, you have this value where you can team up with an engineer from Silicon Valley or an engineer from whatever, and you can create the next best thing. And we need to foster that innovation amongst residents. That's what we need to do. We need to be thinking about the future. We need to be letting the, the, the you know, we need to be um, mentoring, you know, setting that fertile soil so there's new ideas, there's new things coming forward. And, you know, I just can't help but think of technology. I think that technology is going to play a key role in that. Like, I remember when EMR came out and I'm like, why does this EMR look so ugly? Like, I'm sorry, but, you know, because I'm from, I grew up in California, so shout out to Silicon Valley companies, but like, I, I'm like, um, why can't I have an EMR that looks like my iPad? Right? Like, I want something simple and clean. I don't want this clutter that looks like an 8-bit video game from Nintendo system. <laughs> I'm sorry, man, but that's not easy on the eyes. It, it, I don't want that. I want something clean. I want, I want colors like Google or Apple. You know, I want something like that. I mean, you walk into an Apple store, you know, they're selling you a vision. It's not just about the product. They're selling you a vision. It's simple. It's clean. Why can't we have that in healthcare? You know, why does it have to be cluttery? Why does it have to be, you know, all these administrative things that, that, that we know gets in the way? We know this. I mean, there's articles on this. Don't take it from me. Read what's out there. Look at the, there's a famous chart, you know, of looking at, you know, physician salaries compared to administrative uh, cost of expenditure and it's like administrative expenditure has like gone up thousands of percent. <laughs> I know exactly the one you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. It's, but yeah, it's that, 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 so, you know, we're talking about sort of this, this, this unique sort of, um, perspective that you get when you team up with different, different, um, specialties. And that's so how do you think key. medical education needs to evolve, uh, in order to better facilitate this, uh, you know, create more of a, an environment in which this intersectional thinking is going to be able to happen either spontaneously or in sort of a controlled environment or just academic medicine in general. So we have to understand what our problems are first. So our, one of our problems historically is that we are terrible at taking or at enrolling students from underrepresented ethnic racial backgrounds. Uh, if you look at the percentage of black and Latino physicians, it's abysmal. It really hasn't changed in the last 30, 40 years. I think there was a, there was a, um, last year, there was, um, a survey amongst physicians and I believe only 3.9 or 4% identified as Latino or Hispanic when Latinos are the, you know, largest minority group and the demographic of Latinos is going to triple by the year, uh, 2050. And this is important, Justin, because, you have to train people that are representative of your communities. You have to, otherwise you're living in this ideal world. You're living in this world where you're just, it's just, it's going to be this vicious cycle and you're just going to, you're not going to go anywhere. You need to train people that are going to go back to their communities and be invested in their communities. If we have a problem with maternal mortality, you know, if we have a problem with racial inequalities, we need to train people from communities or where, where people are suffering in those communities. This is fundamental. But this speaks to your, your question of innovation. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. So a, a way that I think about it is, well, not only taking students from underrepresented minorities, but including them in the inclusion of underrepresented uh, leaders 
in positions of power, right? Because guess who's going to control the faucet for funding? So if you're sitting, you know, if you're on a, I don't know, I'm just making this up here, but it was, if you're on like a board of directors and you have the, the opportunity to swing a vote, it's like the Supreme Court. If you have, People are loyal to their constituents, are they not? I mean, sure, you have to think of justice, but like people are going to, if you grew up experiencing poverty, you're more likely going to be, your mind is going to be working on innovative ways to address that poverty. <clears throat> and so that's what I think about. I think about, well, we have to take the right people first. And the other aspect of this is we have to take people from the right socioeconomic sort of distributions. Only 5% of physicians come from the lower quintile of, so, of socioeconomics, meaning their parents came from the lower quintile. The majority are from the top two. That's a problem because unfortunately those statistics, you know, the, the, the socioeconomics are also related to race and, and ethnicity. So that's a problem. Because now, you know, you're, you're really talking about, you're freezing out communities where a lot of these medical, so where the burden of medical disease is happening in, in minority communities. But this is how you start. This is how you start. You have to, we have to train of the right people. We, ha we have to serve. This is almost philosophical too, because if you think about a hospital, what's the purpose of a hospital? You know, people, you know, it's funny, right? Because in medical school, we never really learn about like the history of hospitals or the history of like, you know, no one teaches you that. Like, like what was the first hospital? Well, we actually took the idea from the French. Americans didn't invent hospitals. It was Benjamin Franklin's friend. It was, name was, it was, it was Dr. It was Thomas Bond. who was a medical student at the time. He was out in France. Because France is, you know, in the middle, literally, I mean, Europe is in the middle of the enlightenment. He's out there and he, he's, at, he's in Paris and he's a, this is a medical student at the time. Imagine being a medical, medical student in the, 17, the early 1700s. He's in Paris and he sees this charitable hospital. It was, it was called Hotel Dieu. So he's at this charitable hospital. Hospitals didn't exist then. That's the first one. And it provided care for free. It provided care for poor people for free. It was, and guess who ran the hospital? It was the Catholic church. It had philosophical inscriptions, the community. So that's not how medicine was practiced in the U.S. So he got back and he was pretty lucky, this guy, Dr. Bond, because his friend was Benjamin Franklin. So, I mean, pretty lucky, you know. So Ben Franklin was, you know, he had that, that muscle, that political muscle. So what did he do? So he's like, hey, man, this is a great idea for, like, treating people. If you put him in buildings and you call them hospitals, you can, like, pretty quickly, like, you know, treat people well, and you can address a lot of our health problems because there was a lot of breakouts. There was breakouts of um, like um, communicable diseases at trade ports. Philadelphia was a hub. So this is, you know, he's moving back to Philadelphia and, and Ben Franklin was like, yeah, let's do it. There was opposition from the elites. They didn't want to do it. Finally, he muscled through, they built the first hospital. Philadelphia was a Pennsylvania hospital. Yeah, Pennsylvania hospital in Philadelphia first hospital with the same philosophical inscriptions as the Catholic hospital. So there you go to everyone out there who is a physician or is thinking about becoming a physician. The first hospital that was built was directly, directly inspired. We took the DNA from Catholic charity hospitals. Why don't we think about that when we think about the next steps and how to address our problems in healthcare? We don't, but it's funny, right? Cause things are going to come full circle. It's like, we have to understand 
who we are, our history, before we understand our future. We need to talk about this story. And that, by the way, that's important because that's where the first medical school was built. It was, a, it, was, it was an affiliate to that hospital. So it's like, this is the medical nucleus of the United States during its inception. <laughs> and that guy, Dr. Bond, he also invented field hospitals for the Continental Army. So he has a pretty impressive resume. <laughs> but this is what we need to talk about, man. We need to talk about like the, the history and <clears throat> you know, why it's important to treat people that like, you, you should not go bankrupt if you're sick. That's not what our, that is not what Dr. Bond would, Dr. with uh, Benjamin Franklin had in mind. Oh, we're going to you know, U.S. citizens are going to go bankrupt when, when they're sick, you know? Um, but that's really what we have to think about as we sort of think about innovation is we have to understand who we are. So we really get that creative, those creative juices going amongst students and putting the right people in charge that are going to strike those creative juices. Once, once medical students are sort of enrolled, then I think the, the to, to me, a lot, I mean, you, you have to learn the basics, right? You have to learn your physiology and all that. But I think to, for me, like a natural next step for medical students and residents is pair them up with disruptors of, of like of the technology. Like what, can you imagine like being paired up like, imagine this, imagine you're at a residency and everyone in their first year submits a project for like a technology project, uh, you know, for whatever. It doesn't matter if it fails. It matters that you went through the process because now you've been through it. And now, now the next time you have an idea, you're going to link up and you go, oh, I went through it. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. You know? Yeah. Maybe we could do EMR this better way. Like, imagine that that's like your, uh, your, you know, your sort of uh, like your project, like every student or every resident gets paired up, you know, or, or has this assignment of doing this. That's how we strike create creativity. Um, I mean, these are, you know, sort of these examples that I'm thinking about, but I think there's just so much innovation and you ha we have to tap into what motivates millennials, which is purpose, you know, purpose, a sense of justice for communities. Like, you know, if, if, if we, if we tap into gen, generational sentiments, so generational sentiment of purpose and working for meaning, I think we can get far. Absolutely. I, and I want to close with this last question on this topic specifically. And you, you read this article, you mentioned Kevin MD. I want to link to this in the show notes, but it was called who will inspire millennials in healthcare. This is from a few years ago now, but I think you're getting at this root issue of the inspiration and the why, and then bringing that into the present. And what you are seeing is, it's, it sounds like there's a, a bit of a, a crisis of the why. And so I'd love to hear, what are you seeing? And, and what types of, how, what, what can we do about it? In regards to the inspiration that millennials have in practice of medicine. There's a lot of, I mean, we just, just look at the statistics. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of, you know, um, we're not talking about the elephant in the room, which is student loans. Okay. Millennials have on average 300% more student loans than their parents, than our parents' generation. That's a problem because now that pressure, I mean, have we, have we, have we thought about the, ethical pressure of having this immense amount of loans of what what types of decisions are those students going to make in choosing fields are we talking about that 
What if there's a student that really wants to do family medicine, but he's gonna, that student's gonna come out with half a million dollars in loans? You know, how, and then that student changes their mind. Are you gonna blame that student? Is it ethical to, is it ethical to, you know, basically assign a student or, or, or to mentor that student into a field where they're gonna be, you know, paying off their loans for whatever amount of time? So we have to talk about student loans. The other thing too is, you know, what I think is gonna inspire sort of millennials and um, certainly like Gen Z and the, and, and the next generation is, so it's either gonna come from within or it's gonna come from the outside. So we're gonna, we're gonna look at fields like Silicon Valley. So I love Silicon Valley because in a lot of ways it flipped the business really sort of culture on its head. You know, even this concept professionalism, what is professionalism? What does that mean? Does it mean wearing a suit and a tie? Or does it mean telling the truth and being honest? <laughs> I mean, I have different ask, you know. <laughs> it's, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, like you know, yes. So so I think Silicon Valley, and and imagine this, right, Justin. This is you know, really let's think about the power of this idea. Okay. We all know about medical, um, like the, you know, the, the administrative spending and you know how much money is lost and, and stuff like that. I think we're only a matter of years before like an Apple or a Google, you know, who are rolling in profits before they're like, you know what, why don't we just flirt around and just make a hospital? Why, why can't we do that? Why can't we just like make like a little city? Like, you know, we'll have like a little example of a city and we'll just have a hospital and let's see what happens. We'll have entirely, entirely sort of built from within, built from on its own. And I think it's inevitable. I think that's what's going to happen. So it's either we change from the inside and inspire, you know, uh, the next generation and get them going with in engaging with their communities in, in, in addressing problems like maternal morbidity and mortality, other, you know, issues, or students are going to sort of have the side hustle. We talk about the side hustle of millennials. They're just going to go into other fields and they're going to leave medicine or they're gonna team up with other people, or the, you know, what I think is also likely is that the disruption is gonna come from external. Maybe it's gonna be, maybe Apple's gonna build a hospital. I don't know. I, I, I believe that, like, um, uh, come on. When we were growing up, did you ever think Apple, which, you know, we all, I remember in elementary school, we had a little Apple computer. I think it was called Apple II. Yeah, I, I remember the five and a half inch floppies when I was yeah. in elementary school that we would, yeah, run those programs on. We never imagined they were going to have phones, TVs, this and that. You know, we're talking about Tesla. You know, I mean, this is expanding. So this is inevitable, especially, especially in the era of technology where access to technology is or access to healthcare really depends on access to technology. So I think we're heading there. And from a sustainability standpoint, I mean, we can't spend this amount of money compared to other first world countries on healthcare without involving corporate sort of, you know, or technology companies. We can't. Yeah. It's a great question, man. I, I love talking about this because it just has so many implicate like the future is so diverse in 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 sort of possibilities. Yeah. Absolutely. Um is there so I uh, just one last question. What uh 
you know, for for yourself, if you think back to the, you, you've come a long way and you've learned a lot, I, I think very quickly. It sounds like you have like a whole lifetime worth of just wisdom that you've accrued in only the first handful of years as an attending. If you could go back and talk to yourself as a med student or a resident and, you know, is there anything you would have either done differently or a way that you would have looked at the world a little bit differently or something else that you want to impart to those who haven't had all these intersectional types of experiences that you have? Wow. Um, I think that's a great question. I think if I were to go back and sort of talk to myself when I was a medical student, let's say, I think I would have probably just told myself to really look for, you know, just become more financially aware, financially savvy, um, investments and things like that, because, you know, here we are. So we're this America, the, the United States is the beacon of capitalism. We, we I mean, the, the, you turn on the TV and any news channel, you see the stocks at the bottom. I mean, it's everywhere. It's around this. Like, this is the beacon of capitalism of the world. Why is it then that doctors and medical students, you, you know, the training of, of doctors, why don't we talk about this? Why aren't we talking about medicine? It, there's this huge discrepancy. Oh, it's, you know, because we're in for, for pure, like engineers don't also have a purpose. Apple engineers don't have a purpose. People who work for NASA don't have a purpose. They, you know, they're, they're allowed to talk about money, but doctors can't, especially when you're talking about the incredible debt over our heads and the fact that our culture is essentially a culture of capitalism, like how there's this discrepancy. So I would probably just tell myself, read a book. There's a great book I want to highlight to everyone listening. It's um, Capital, Capital in the 21st Century. I have it somewhere. It's by Dr. Um, it's by Thomas Piketty. He's a French economist. And he breaks down the societies. He breaks down the economies of basically the Western industrialized world throughout time. He gives a really great perspective on how wealth basically was accumulated, the structure of the corporate structure, just because things exist a certain way doesn't mean it's the best way. So I like an example that blew my mind is in Germany, like these companies like BMW, these companies, their executive suite are comprised of workers, workers. Imagine, imagine having a law that mandated 50% of your executive suite is going to be workers. That's what they do in Europe. And we borrow a lot of their ideas in medicine. Like they invented the whole proning for ARDS, which is standard of care. Like they invented that in, in, in and so like, uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty smart. Like, like yeah, we, we, let's, let's be humble here. Like we can learn from the Europeans. If they invented the democratization of the executive suite, guess what? It's only a matter of time before that idea is, makes it to the US. And the Roosevelt Institute, a progressive think tank is already writing about this. They're writing about the democratization of the executive suite. We cannot have this aggressive mindset where it's all profits, profits, profits. We know it's bad. We know it kills morale. Um, what you're just gonna have stakeholders or, or, or sorry, shareholders, shareholders in charge. No, you need to have stakeholders, which are basically another word for workers. You need to have workers in charge because those workers see the world through the people on the assembly line. That's, you know, and so that's where I think like, you know, a lot of the, the inspiration is going to come from this cross pollination. Like I love reading about economists, like, you know, or, or reading themes from economists from around the world. And 
it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation, which is just, you know, get out of your comfort zone, you know, just let's learn new things, you know? So if that's what I would, you know, I would probably tell myself to read, read Thomas Piketty earlier, earlier on, because we really have to understand if we're in the beacon of capitalism, if we live in sort of the leading capitalist country of the world, we really need that proper education in in medicine, we need to train doctors the right way because it's unethical. It's unethical to just you know string kids along into fields where then they're gonna that interest is gonna accumulate over their heads, you know. Um, but no, it's a great question, man. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it there, Dr. Padilla. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us on APM Success. Absolutely, Justin. It was a pleasure. Shout out to all my mentors out there. Um, you know, I would not be here if it wasn't for all these people that I mentioned during the conversation. Um, so thank you all. And um, yeah, thanks, Justin, for having me on. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.